song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond, he's David Gibb, and this is How Wrestling Explains the World. Uh, exciting episode today, Dave. I know you love the really academic parts of the show so, oh, yeah, so much. It's basically what I look for. <laughs> like uh, like high, concept, high concept talk. I love feeling like I'm back to school. <laughs> oh, well, thankfully, we had reading materials this week. Uh, we'll, we'll get into them, I, I think, a little bit later on, the specifics. But uh, the reading materials we focused on were for this episode, which isn't really postmodernism per se, as much as it's uh, post-structuralism. And structuralism, but mostly post-structuralism. And uh, a real quick definition, and I I think we're going to talk about it for a minute or two here just to flesh it out because it's been a while since I've done this shit, since college, actually. Uh, So (laughs) structuralism is basically... The best way to think about structuralism and post-structuralism is kind of like applying a kind of scientific method almost to... Uh, literature and storytelling and uh, our understandings of knowledge. It's philosophy in the sense of uh, like a scientific method kind of thing. And what structuralism is, is essentially it identified the structures and the uh, tropes and the, the archetypes within those structures. And what post-structuralism does essentially is say, yeah, those are weird. We should stop telling stories like that, uh, right? Essentially, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's, I think, the best way to describe it is to, like, it went from saying these are the structures to, like, what do these structures mean? Yeah, I think the, the best explanation or analogy I've ever heard for structuralism is literally architecture, like describing structures. So, um, like, a structuralist exercise, something a structuralist might do, would be to go to a block on which all the buildings were built in the 1890s look at all the buildings and say, what can I determine about the 1890s or about architecture in the late 19th century based on all these examples? Or uh, another uh, structuralist thing could be to go to a block, you know, with buildings from all different times to have kind of front loaded yourself with information about the 1890s, then look at the buildings and say, okay, based on what I know about the 1890s, which of these buildings is from that period? That's the kind of like structuralist mindset is really knowing something inside and out like you said, a very kind of like scientific, academic approach and just really thinking about kind of context and consistency and what makes a certain genre or a certain era or a certain context kind of itself. What are the tropes, as you were saying? Structuralism kind of has this idea of that being the way things are just because of like almost an inherent human nature where post-structuralism goes, whoa, like you got that part right. The like these structures inform everything, um, and and you can tell things by looking at a block. But like, can you understand the individual aspects that led to the people founding that city, which led to that part of the town being developed in the way that it was, and what all of that means, so you can in the future develop new housing basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. It's like post-structuralism is pushing you to, to think a little further, to think about maybe, yeah, motivations and to move to move from just ob- observing the pieces of something and how they fit together to kind of really assessing those pieces, like which ones are the most important, which ones are not very valuable at all, which are things that we can continue to use in the present, which of the things are, are squarely kind of left in the past. So yeah, it's way more evaluative Whereas uh, 
Structuralism is way more observational, I guess, or analytical. Yeah, yeah. and and like uh, classification based, it's way more. Mm -hmm. That's that's a way better way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah, it's much more like library science, which is my favorite Mm -hmm. thing on earth. I actually really like structure. I love post structuralism, but structuralism has a special place in my heart because it was the first time I read stuff, and I was like, oh, that's how I think about the world. Like, cool. Not in a. I was like. Yeah, relatively young when I, I like found out about because I was always into wrestling. So like I found out about some of the, the more academic writing about wrestling earlier mm-hmm. on. And it was just like, oh, really cool. Uh, I'm not an idiot. Like some of this <laughs> stuff actually has depth. It was the first time you read stuff and were like, oh, the things that I see that other people don't see in movies and stuff like that exist. I'm not crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I took and then I took a class and I was like, oh, God, it does exist. But other people have stupid ideas. That was what I learned. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, I, we picked, uh, uh, as we usually do, we picked a clip and I think that's something we're going to do going forward. I think it's the best way to like unpack whatever we're doing. Cause we're kind of post-structuralists, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least on this show. Um, we, uh, picked Vince McMahon's speech to the fans. Uh, it's called the cure for the common show. He is just literally as Vincent Kennedy McMahon CEO of W and chairman of the WWE or the WWF at that time explaining like, this is a, this is not what you thought it was. This is a completely different thing. So you'll see uh, in the clip and then we'll, we'll definitely be unpacking it. So um, enjoy the clip and uh, we'll see you in like two and a half minutes. It has been said that anything can happen here in the world wrestling federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV. Daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others. Cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox. Sitcoms like Seinfeld and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. However, due to the live nature of Raw and the war zone, we encourage some degree of parental discretion as it relates to the younger audience allowed to stay up late. Other WWF programs on USA, such as Saturday Morning Livewire and Sunday Morning Superstars, where there's a 40% increase in the younger audience, obviously, however, need no such discretion. We are responsible television producers who work hard to bring you this outrageous, wacky, wonderful world known as the WWF. Through some 50 years, the World Wrestling Federation has been an entertainment mainstay here in North America and all over the world. One of the reasons for that longevity is as the times have changed, so have we. I'm happy to say that this new vibrant creative direction has resulted in a huge increase in television viewership for which we thank USA Network and TSN for allowing us to have the creative freedom, but most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. 
Raw and the War Zone are definitely the cure. For the common show. Um, Not that they're one show. They're two shows. Raw and the War Zone. They're two shows. So we can count everybody twice. That is, like, uh, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. That is such a crazy promo or speech or whatever you want to call it. It's it's like if Shonda Rhimes came on and was like, this is a television show, guys. <laughs> I don't know if you knew it, but this is a television show. And then after that, they were like, oh, we're just going to now have people like floating in air and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just like that is fourth wall obliterating because that is like that is really the quote unquote realist version of Vince McMahon I think that's ever been portrayed on WWE slash FTV, right? I mean, he was like announcer uh, Vince at various times and he was boss Vince at times and he was cartoon heel Vince at times. Like there is the Brett screwed Brett Vin- uh, Vince, but that was clearly kind of connected to an angle too. But this like ostensibly, I think was supposed to be real or le- you know what I mean? I think that's what they were going for. Yeah, this is Vince McMahon, the guy who talks at, like the quarterly earnings meetings. This isn't Vince. That's a good analogy. This isn't Vince McOrd is trying to make a deal with a, another promoter or a, an arena owner or something like that. Like this is him selling you. And the only time it reminds me of him as uh, at the first uh, in your house, he's selling you on the idea of the WWF is like this place where anything can happen. It is, and that's the key thing in that speech is he talks about how anything can happen. He uses the phrase more extemporaneous than ever. Like <laughs> he really wants to get over the idea that literally anything can happen, which I think kind of is challenged by the idea that he's the one in charge, right? Like this is a performance art piece. As much as it's him, it's a performance art piece. And he's telling you, like, we're changing things, but, like, they're not. No, the way uh, the way he's describing wrestling is, like, being inspired by soap operas and athletics and always keeping the emphasis on entertainment. Like, I mean, people have been observing that about wrestling, like, going back to the 50s. But, like, it's also a transparently hucksterish sales pitch. Like you said, he says, you know, things like more extemporaneous forever. He also talks about the parental guidance piece at the end. It's like he's, without saying it, he's like, there's going to be violence. There's going to be sex. There's going to be cursing. Like, you got to watch. It's very much like, and we still have the stuff for the kids. But seriously, you're going to see boobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. If you want to, if you want to, you can. And and I think on a lot of levels, and the reason we I wanted to use that specific promo speech, let's call it a speech. It, mm-hmm. it, it reads more like a speech. I agree. I wanted to use that specifically is because it explicitly challenges um, the concept, not just that Vince, because Vince didn't create this concept a man named uh, and we mentioned him in last week's episode uh or last episode toots mond of the gold dust trio is really the gold dust trio is the one who invented pretty much everything we understand as professional wrestling from like the finishes to tag team matches all of it was generated by this guy so what vince is doing is just evolving something that had been built in the 1920s off of things that happened in the 1900s. And before that, there were definitely like staged fights, but it wasn't like a circuit that you did. What, but what Vince is also doing is he's, he's moving it past both that 
And um, the type of wrestling that uh, a man named Roland Bartz, who I'm going to mention his name uh, a couple of times, but when I say his name, I don't want you to think of him as a structuralist because he's actually a post-structuralist, but he started structuralism along with people like uh, Joseph Campbell and stuff like that. He is one of the people who built the foundation of what's considered like modern philosophy. Um, And his most famous work is a thing called Mythologies. And in it, he has an essay, the first essay of the entire series, which he did for, I believe, a French newspaper or literary magazine. He, the first one he does is wrestling. And in it, he talks about the good guys and the bad guys and how everything is symbolic. He talks about suffering, uh, how it's an art of suffering. But specifically, his big thing mm-hmm. is that both the it's a spectacle that is uh, the equivalent, the modern equivalent, essentially, of Greek theater. Uh, he, he really hits on that. He says... Uh, moreover, wrestling is an open-air spectacle, for the essence of the circus or the arena is not the sky, a romantic value best suited to fashional celebrations, but the dense, vertical character of the flood of light. Even in the depths of the dingiest Parisian halls, wrestling partakes of the nature of the great solar spectacles, bullfights, and Greek theater. In, a, in all these places, a light without shadow elaborates in an emotion without secrets. So basically what he's saying is that uh, this is reminiscent Wrestling is reminiscent of Greek theater, which is known for uh, having actual masks so that people in the back could see the facial expressions of the actors to see which way they were feeling. And that wrestling explicitly gives this feeling of a live spectacle that is reminiscent of like the most primitive I guess you would call it primitive forms of entertainment. I mean, I think that he, you know, uh, you mentioned Campbell. Here with a Thousand Faces was published in, I think, 49. And uh, these these pieces started being published in 57. So, I mean, this is like really fresh afterwards. And when people are really starting to think of like all entertainment and literature and art through the lens of the past. So it like, this sounds, this stuff seems kind of like elementary now, I guess, was like, well, yeah, it's epic storytelling, of course. But like at the time, these were like really, really fresh ideas, which I feel like it's easy to, uh, to overlook sometimes. But I mean, I thought when I I read some of these uh, essays this week in preparation to do this, and it made me kind of exciting because or excited, rather, uh, it made me kind of excited. uh, Because I frequently or in the past have kind of written about uh, wrestling and stories and characters and finishes through the lens of Campbell. And then it just blew my mind to see someone like doing the exact same thing in like the fifties. So like, I thought that like I was some sort of decent writer or thinker. And here I was just like rehashing something that had been articulated way more succinctly, you know, when my parents were children. So that was a fun time for me this week. (laughs) I, uh, what I like about, uh, Barth's explanation, it's so acutely, like you said, it's very concise in its explanation of what worked about wrestling. But even as he's talking about this, there is a change in the direction of wrestling because of television. Television just changes Mm -hmm. wrestling. Full stop. It becomes a completely different thing because as it is now, as it has always been, it is a content farm. Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, that uh, TV and wrestling had always been married because, like you said, wrestling was good content. And then 
you mentioned uh, Totesmont. One person who really would have come uh, between Totesmont and Vince McMahon in chronology uh, would be Jim Barnett, because what Jim Barnett really created um, in the 60s and 70s in Georgia and in Australia was the system by which wrestling in the 70s and 80s really worked, which was um, doing you know a taped studio show, uh, creating town-specific promos and cutting them into the TV and then chasing the TV around a loop doing live shows. That part of wrestling was really created by Barnett. So that's kind of one other thinker who I'll, who I'll throw out there is really a crucial step between the way wrestling was on TV in the fifties with, you know, the Dumont network and Vern Gagne uh, and the world that Vince McMahon was kind of born into in 82 when he bought the company. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is that he almost doesn't in the speech acknowledge his, no, he doesn't almost, he does not acknowledge his role in the structuralist nature of wrestling because what's weird about wrestling in the territories is that you could have a guy, obviously the world's champion is the world's champion, but you have could have a guy who's a good guy in Texas and the worst guy in San Francisco. Sure, you, you could even be a huge superstar like Terry Funk and in rough territories like some of the West Texas territories or wherever, you know, you were just naturally a baby face and then in some of the territories with more nat- you know, normal sort of classic baby faces like the Mid-Atlantic or the AWA, you just walked in and because you were Terry Funk, you were a heel. Yeah, and that there was a lot more nuance and a much more like – almost post-structuralist style because television is such a post-structuralist medium because you can do so many different things within the context of it. It's, it's like the, as much as you can get within the a medium, it is post-structuralist. But the thing that Vince did was he figured out the best way. And it also helped that he was in New York to monetize what he was doing wide scale to scale it in a way that you could actually out earn the people around you without out spending significantly until you had to get the talent. Like once you could spend money on talent, you didn't have to spend money on production necessarily because you're really just about making good deals with cable providers. And like Vince played a role in all of this. And in that speech, it's mentioned zero times. What's really interesting is that speech is really word for word what he was telling cable providers and athletic commissions 10 or 12 years before in order to free up his business. Like he's giving this speech to the fans in uh, 97, right? End of 97. Uh, and I mean, you know, in the late eighties, he was really trying to get wrestling deregged and get it better time slots by telling, Hey, we're just entertainment like a soap opera. Uh, we, you know, we have some good athleticism, but we always make sure that entertainment is number one. Like all the things he's saying to us, the fans in this speech, I think he's trying to kind of recapture the boom that he had when he said those same things to regulators 10 years before because that really did make a significant increase in his business when he convinced them like hey we're not this blood and guts pro wrestling we're like cartoons like i love the mention of king of the hill we're like king of the hill mixed with sports mixed with a soap opera like it worked 10 years before let's try because this is really you know when he was on his ass in the fight with the wcw still so it's like this desperate attempt to well exposing the business made me a ton of money the first time let's try doing it again but this time we're going to expose it to the fans it is both a trick and not a trick because he does 
in front of the camera by breaking the fourth wall in a way that is like not just unprecedented, but almost given the context before it unfathomable. He in doing so kind of allows his show to not get ahead of the NWO, which is happening simultaneously in WCW, but like catch up instantly. It gives him like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like fast traveling and fallout where it's just like, Oh, I'm at the place I need to be immediately. So I can catch up with you because what the NWO and Eric Bischoff, who is important to note was much more of a TV guy than most wrestling guys are. And uh, Eric Bischoff created an, like he broke the fourth wall without actually breaking the fourth wall. And what he did was bring in what was supposed to be an outside group, but it wasn't actually an outside group. Yeah, absolutely. So it was people, it was people who uh, were under contract to WCW and like, you know, there were kind of, if you really wondered, there were kind of ways that you could see who was legally under contract to whom to settle any disputes. Uh, But yeah, creating the perception that there was someone who had come there to destroy your company. So there was there was an invading force that had to be fought off. And what Vince did, it said, that's great that you've created this like quasi-realistic uh, uh you've you've like broken or like made a much more permeable membrane permeable membrane between kayfabe and the real world. I'm just gonna announce that I'm God. And that's what Vince did. Vince just announced I'm God of this entire universe. So strap in. We're going to have some fun. And I think it's important. We're going to be, it's like, we're going to be as bad as we want to (laughs) be. Now I'm just thinking of that, uh, that GIF of him watching the guy from the WBF do different poses. And like, Oh, Gary Stratton. Gary Stratton. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But what, he did was by saying I am God is he allowed anything to happen now. Cause he, he made it a TV show, right? Like he literally said, this is a TV show from now on, whatever you thought it was beforehand. It's not a TV show anymore. Uh, It's not a wrestling league. That's has a television show. This is a TV series. Where like the NWO was an invading force of a wrestling company that had a television show. When in reality it was a TV company that had a wrestling show. He also said in there too that it's like we are a television show and our goal is to always entertain you. And put on the best, most exciting, craziest stuff we possibly can. And we're going to never ever bore you. And now like 20 years later, they are kind of reaping some of what they sowed there with the kind of very postmodern audience of hardcore fans that they've now cultivated. And you can really kind of trace that back to here. Like this is where they really first started telling people we're here to entertain you. And, you know, our number one priority is that the shows are never boring and they're constantly giving you your favorite flavor of ice cream over and over. So this is like, he kind of redefined what the wrestling business was about here in a way that I think was intentional on some level, because like you said, he made himself God. But I also don't think he really appreciated how much he was 
empowering the audience, the kind of the groundlings of the Shakespeare, so to speak, you know, by saying the show here, the goal is always to entertain you, never to bore you. We're going to give you everything you want all the time. Like that's a really dangerous thing to tell people. And that's what's interesting, especially when you look at the, uh, the Barth's essay is that a lot of what he talks about is the like savoring of the moment within the context of a match or any part of a wrestling show that like, you wear defeat outwardly when you're being defeated, when you're on the ground or whatever. Um, McMahon basically says like, and I think it's important to note, and you brought up Barnett and, um, and Tootsmond, uh, we mentioned earlier again, they're all actual, like Vince, say what you will about Vince McMahon. The reason he feels so much different is because he's talking like a television producer who really loves making television but is a television producer. He gives you that feeling of just like, I love doing this shit, but I'm also in it because I love money. So. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. No, he is in the business of giving you what you want because that's how he gets your money out. I mean, there's, you can still, no matter how expensive the suits and the haircuts get, it's like, you can still, you can still kind of smell that, that carny, uh, vapor wafting off of Vince, even in his most buttoned down moments. My favorite part of that speech is him specifically talking about Hogan and the uh, the days of superheroes telling you to say your prayers and take your vitamins, which I should note for the audience, I screwed up like 17 times talking about with Dave before the show, so I'm really happy I nailed that one. Uh, he... he is the one, not just that worked with Terry Bollea to create Hulk Hogan. He had the Hulk Hogan character and said, hey, Terry Bollea, we used to work together. Right, right. A lot of the Hogan character was developed in the AWA, like with the ripping of the shirt and everything uh, by, you know, Vern and Greg Gagne uh, like to take a lot of credit for it. I'm sure they deserve uh, a good deal. Uh, but but like that 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 character that he did was kind of cultivated in the AWA. But I agree with you that it was Vince's vision was to have this super duper bigger than life looked like Mr. T on the A team or friggin' He Man in the cartoons baby face that was going to be on top for as long as Bruno or Backlund had been. Definitely, that was his. Yeah, vision. that is a much better articulation. Yeah, he had he had the idea of this character he wanted to create a national promotion around. And then he had worked with Hogan and was like, hey, Hulk, you want to come back? <laughs> yeah, Hogan had had his big run already with Andre. like in Because uh, I think it was the huge match that had uh, uh, San Martino and Zbysko in the cage. I think Hogan and Andre were, were the, either the co-main event or somewhere on the undercard of that show. So he had already had a really good run in New York a few years before. Yeah, and... What's interesting is that you get the feeling that this was done, this like line in the sand from Vince McMahon, in large part because he had lost the ability to decide who was a good guy and who was a bad guy. Because Hogan was a star and he was the biggest babyface, one of the biggest babyfaces in the history of wrestling. He was, by almost no definition, a good guy. Or a good guy. Like, neither of those things. And what I always felt like, um, especially when thinking about this episode, is that his entire career is this weird, like, performance art where all of the shit he's doing backstage manifests itself in 
the show you're watching. And uh, I'm going to real quick uh, play uh, just a snippet of speeches from WrestleMania five from Savage and Hogan. And you're going to be able to see, tell me in your head who you think is the good guy and who's the bad guy. Oh, yeah, Hulk Hogan, I remember way back when, when the mega powers were bonded, yeah. You made a lot of promises to the macho man, didn't you? Promises that you didn't keep. I remember one specific one, yeah. You promised that Elizabeth would never be in a dangerous position. You broke that promise, didn't you, Hulk Hogan? And who had to come in and make that critical save? The macho man, Randy Savage, covering for Hogan again. Hogan, I only come down in your matches when it's absolutely necessary. When you're down and out. That's the kind of rules I play by. But you, you play by different rules. Yeah, you gotta get in your grandstanding and you're hot dogging, don't you? Yeah. I remember a time when I wrestled the king too. And in fact, I hit boss men on the outside of the ring just like you. The only difference was I was doing real good. Yeah, I was styling out there like a champion. Yeah, but Guess who shows up for no reason at all to get his grandstanding and hot-dogging in? You, man. You, Hulk Hogan, yeah. You just couldn't stand to sit back with your feet up and watch the champion in action. Hogan, not only are you a hot-dog, a grandstander, a showboat, and a prima donna, but you're a liar, too. In fact, I remember a time where we stood in front of the man that does nothing but lie, brother love, and you told some of the biggest lies that I've ever heard of in my whole life. I love him like a brother. It's a lie, Hulk Hogan, and that's enough to get me hot. But what you said to Elizabeth is enough to get me to the boiling point. Yeah! I love Elizabeth. Hulk Hogan, you say you love Elizabeth? I got news for you, man. I got news for you. Elizabeth is going to be in the corner of the macho man Randy Savage at WrestleMania 5. Yeah. And let me tell you something. You say you love me like a brother. Well, listen to this, Hulk Hogan. I hate you. I hate your guts. And that's what's going to be left all over the mat after WrestleMania 5. I wash my hands completely of you, macho man. We started out at the same level, brother. The same pinnacle as Mega Power Partners. My little hucksters gave you everything, man. They gave you their love. They gave you their dedication. You got power. You took courage from them to beat all odds, man. We based our love on the three demandments of the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. But you threw it all away, man. You couldn't function as a team with me, man. You're the one that was jealous. Jealousy that turned into a cancer that started eating you alive, macho man. Eating your guts, brother. But as we get into WrestleMania 5, the love that you give is equal to the love you receive. That's the same with hatred, brother. You say you hate me. You hate all my Hulkamaniacs. Well, the hatred that you're giving off is going to be the same hatred that tears you apart, brother. When we get into the ring, Hulkamania is going to rule. Hulkamania is going to run wild at WrestleMania 5. And as the cancer starts eating your abdominal 
abdominals, eat your pectoral muscles, goes up into your neck and starts eating at your brain. There's only one thing that's going to be keeping you alive. That's your life support system, the WWE title. And as you start to lose your grasp, as your fingers start to slide down the front of the belt, that's when I'm going to strip it away from you. Pull the plug on your life support system. I'll be the new champion of the WWE. And what you gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world destroy you? Uh, Dave, who is the good guy in that and who is the bad guy? Um, I would say the guy who has designs on the other guy's like entire life is probably the bad guy because that seems like very grasping <laughs> and aggressive. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's how it seems to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the guy who's upset that his friend quote-unquote, kept getting his his girlfriend in harm's way after explicitly telling him he wouldn't do that, is pissed about it. And he also thinks that that guy is cheating on, uh, is is cheating with his girlfriend on him. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Every time every time Hogan put her on his shoulder, that hand was, was squarely on the butt. It was not subtle. It was there to be seen. Really inappropriate. But, and I mean, that's... We're kind of kidding, because Savage did a bunch of terrible shit, too. He wasn't, like, a baby face. But, uh, yeah, especially in the treatment of the Elizabeth Department. Yeah. But Hogan isn't the good guy in that feud. He's really never the good guy. But in the history of wrestling, I don't. I think it's hard to argue there's been a more explicit good guy than... But uh, one of the things he talks about in there, that it's much like Greek theater, it's all about catharsis for the audience. And like Hulk Hogan would rake the back or gouge the eyes or kick someone low like when the ref's back was turned or whip them with his weight belt. And like all of that was in the name of righteous fury and of earning that catharsis of giving the bad guy his comeuppance, which from Bartha's perspective is always kind of the the bottom line is the morality play is the, uh, the, the, the simple, the, the, the theater of a world where problems are solved very easily, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So as of recording, I no longer have as big a deal with Hulk Hogan raking the back. Alert the crowd. And I guess that's more of a, like, well, if it's the will of the people and exactly. And I think at least what McMahon does is understand that that is no longer a viable construct for telling simplistic stories and that telling simplistic stories is no longer hey this is the douchiest thing simple like you can't just because everything and we are just towards the beginning at this point of the concept of the beginning of peak tv um so because i think the sopranos comes out around this time and that is really considered the beginning of peak tv you get that you get the wire and it kind of builds to this crescendo we have now but i think he understood perhaps better than anybody vince mcmahon did that the advent of cable had not yet caught up to the like influence it could possibly have and it was starting to really change the way we consumed media because the concept of being able to just eat whatever you want at any time in terms of if you had a five they always used to have jokes um when we were kids about uh comedians would about uh 
500 channels on their television or whatever. And nothing to watch. Exactly. Yeah, that is like literally a bit. (laughs) We're not. not. A bit that many hat comedians did. Many. Maybe every hat comedian. Yeah, that is slightly below uh, airline food (laughs) in terms of that. Uh, But what I think that did is it made people want nuance without realizing they wanted nuance they want exactness and they want to in this world of not to get too like oh man existential crisis but like in this world of like at best model consumerism beating us down uh our entire lives it is nice to feel like something might be close to specifically for you and vince mcmahon understood that part of that was having to tell stories where not just anti-heroes, but people who framed frame or present as heroes that the crowd hates. And what Hogan was, was them saying, this guy who's kind of a douche is a good guy because we say so, and he he says so, more importantly. He insist, insisted upon himself for the entire 80s. Right. And I mean, even in even in recent years, I mean, he uh, like killed an entire network or online media company uh, because of his defense of his character as he not his character as in his moral character, but his character as in the character he plays on TV. Yeah, he is very weirdly like everything you've ever seen. The idea to me and that was what was absurd, actually, about the Gawker, not to get too deep into the Gawker thing, but I think it's an important part of this discussion is that. Sorry, I opened a can of worms. (laughs) No, is that he argued legally that Terry Bollea and Hulk Hogan are two different people and and have different sized penises. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's in the documents. Sorry. So our, our wild and wacky legal system, more extemporaneous than ever. <laughs> um, yeah, so he was literally saying, I am not this person you see on TV, but we've watched enough wrestling. Totally that dude. 100%. And it's not until he gets to the NWO that you actually see it. And I think that was what was... Vince McMahon knew he had to get to was people being some semblance of real, even though the entire thing was a construct. And I think that's what changed was that everything was allowed to be fake, which meant that everything could be kind of real. Exactly. I think he saw kind of the seeds of that during the Hogan run in the 80s, especially with like a character like Randy Savage, right? Like you hear the stories about Randy Savage that uh, it's actually Dutch Mantel always says that, uh, you know, Randy Poffo became Randy Savage and then Randy Savage became the macho man. Like in, in that he got rid of everything that was fake about his character by becoming the character. He completely changed the cadence and tone of his voice to speak the way that he spoke on TV at all times. He dressed the way that he dressed on TV at all times. He removed everything that was fake about him by disappearing into the fake character, which is a pretty crazy, like mental gymnastic if you think about it. But that's how Randy Savage made money and became one of the biggest stars that Vince ever had. And I think that 
by kind of making this announcement, as you were just saying, he was kind of hoping to unlock that potential for everyone where they're simultaneously fully real and fully fake. And that's like the loosest, most open-ended place for everybody to be artistically and in terms of places you can take them with writing. And yeah, and it's when you are free of those structures, which is something, um, we're not gonna spend too much time in Derrida because it is a slog. Um, I love Derrida, but it is a fucking slog to read him. Uh, he talks about this concept as necess- as inev- both inevitable and in order to be unlocked, it has to be understood through like research, essentially, to be inevitable. Uh, he he argues that in order to understand anything, you kind of have to understand everything about that thing. And I think Vince McMahon, again, I, like he is an artist. Like we we may not like him, but he considers himself at the very least like a, a television. I'd say auteur. He is definitely an auteur in the way that like, uh, like Orson Welles was an auteur. Yeah. He is a creative force. So like he actually, I would not be surprised if he had read the Barthes essay, not because he thought he could get good ideas, but just, you know, I, I want to read about wrestling. I like reading. Like, he seems like the type of guy that would understand that and not necessarily be trying to break that, but he would be the type of person that would learn as much about the history of what he was doing as he could just so he could crush his competition. One of the things that's so interesting with him, too, though, is like, I think he does understand all the conventions of wrestling and... He doesn't do that necessarily to inform what he does in so much as he does it to make sure that he can defy all of those and do something different. And that's something that Derrida gets at is that when you have a world where there's an established culture and there's like a kind of sameness or regularity to everything, then it becomes the outliers that actually tell you more about the situation than those who fall in line. And I think Vince McMahon is a great example of that where like he's everything or his ideals are so different from pro wrestling that somehow he can tell you the most about pro wrestling if you study him. Yes, because he's not, he doesn't do it for the love of the game. He does it for the love of the business and he loves the business, but he's a promoter. That's who he is at his heart. He became a television producer because that was the best way to be a wrestling promoter. But and to go back to the speech at the beginning, He is clearly so happy to be talking to fans as Vince McMahon. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's palpable. And I think that's what makes his character, Mr. McMahon, so incredible because it so clouds your understanding of Vince McMahon that you forget that like a lot of the people, not all of them, obviously not all of them. I would say about, 40% 40% hate him. Uh, maybe 20% now. 20% don't love him. And 60%, like, he's their favorite person ever. Like, they love the opportunity he's given them. They love being able to work uh, with him. You know what I'm saying? Like, and not in a way that feels like cloying, like, or sucker up in a way that seems like they genuinely understand that like this guy is the reason this company exists and this company is the thing they always wanted to do. 
Does that make sense? Oh yeah, I think he's someone who just inspires a passionate response one way or the other, you know. Exactly. And and I think that especially for people who become close to him, that gets more and more magnified, right? Uh, like you could take someone who had been so close to him and then became estranged, like Bret Hart, and like the fire. Uh, with which Bret Hart once despised Vince McMahon was like really uncomfortable to read or hear about, honestly. But at the same time, you know, you hear like um, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and you have someone who was close to him for so many years and who made so much money alongside him. And, you know, they just sometimes find it hard to say anything bad about him because he he's a character who uh, I guess just sort of inspires such strong feelings one way or the other. And- I also think it's one of those things where he does, he genuinely has done so much that you, as long as he had never personally harmed you, you can contextualize whatever shitty thing he did in the much larger context of all of, especially if you're like a Bruce Pritchard, Pritchard, um, how much he like made your life the way it is and not in a like um, master kind of way, but in like a, no, this guy, this guy's, I don't want to call it genius at all. I I don't think he's a genius, but the force of this guy's will helped me realize a lot of dreams. Yeah, the force of will and the vision that dates all the way back to finding Hogan that we were talking about earlier in the show, the big vision, and yeah, the force of will to just refuse not to succeed. In that sense, he's like one of the quintessential, at least to me, um, I'm trying to think of the best word to put it, uh, avatars for postmodernism in an entertainment context because as he says in that speech change is the number one thing wwe does wwe constantly evolves as a medium within the context of wrestling it is now essentially wwe specifically a content creating company that focuses on wrestling content but they produce movies they produce original shows that aren't directly wrestling related. They produce cartoons. They do all of the stuff that Disney does, except they don't have Disney's like roster of characters on top of an amusement park. And Disney has the advantage that their roster of characters is immortal. You know what I mean? You, Mickey and Minnie and Goofy and Donald aren't going to die um, I hope. I mean, Goofy will never die. Um, but uh, but but whereas wrestling, right? You you have guys who age out. You have injuries. You have people who get addicted to drugs or murder people, or uh, you have people who have falling outs, like I was talking about with Bret Hart before. So it's like considering they don't have all the advantages that Disney has, it's pretty impressive how close they are, or how 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 in terms of just how available their content is out there these days, how ubiquitous they are in their market, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And a lot of that is uh, not just Vince, but, and sorry guys, this is the WWE heavy episode. It's just, we're using this as um, there are plenty of other postmodern examples. Uh, Shikara's again, we mentioned last week, that's really the best one. If you want to really see like a postmodern wrestling promotion, it's Shakara, maybe Lucha Underground again. There are a couple other ones, but they are much similar to um, just straight wrestling promotions. Lucha Underground, interestingly enough, is maybe the closest thing to what Vince is actually promising in that speech we keep coming back to. Where it's like, we're going to use all the best dramatic because like they really do use all the camera angles and all the lighting from both American soap operas and Mexican uh, telenovelas and stuff like that. Like they use all those production techniques 
and they really leverage like every piece, every every way that you can stretch belief in the wrestling genre, every way you can stretch belief in the soap opera genre, every way you can stretch belief in the kung fu movie genre or the action comedy movie genre, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is the best embodiment of what Vince is talking about. Yes, and what because what Vince does better than other people outside of business deals is i guess you would call it is this the right phrase to use uh insistent terminology and like messaging he's not just a marketer he's a propagandist yeah absolutely he sets the vocabulary controls i mean the power of words right when you set the vocabulary you control the whole conversation really which is what he did with McMahon. Uh, sorry, not with McMahon. With Hogan, is he um, Gorilla Monsoon was and we, we, Gorilla Monsoon. I love Gorilla Monsoon, but uh, yeah, so, weird listening to some of his stuff, isn't it, Dave? Uh, yeah, I, I was listening to an old show, and there is a character uh, named Slick from the late '80s, if you do not know, uh, who is uh, portraying a, a streetwise, maybe pimp or drug dealer type character, maybe not. Not that we're saying it. Uh, but it was crazy how close Gorilla Monsoon said to saying something extremely racist. Like every, every sentence he said about Slick was one extra word away from just being horrific. And I think that's kind of what Hogan did. And I think what works with um, Hogan explicitly, and, and I think this is um, something that we don't necessarily realize until you're watching it now is that although McMahon did frame Hogan as explicitly the good guy, he allowed or allowed isn't the right word. He in conjunction with his performers, uh, specifically I wanted to talk about Jesse Ventura and Bobby, the brain Heenan told a story of how Hogan was a bad guy. That was accurate but not believable because of the source. More so Bobby Heenan than Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura is a much more um, believable and credible critic of Hogan's actions than Heenan is. But they both go out of their way to uh, kind of um, control the narrative through the use of a, a, a... Is that like a dialectic? Is that what they call it? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So like a lot of the times, I mean, what Jesse would do specifically is when people would, you know, when Gorilla or Vince, whoever he was working with, even Tony Schiavone, would point out, you know, what the bad guys were doing, what the heels were doing, and how low down it was. And Jesse would just go, Hulk Hogan did the same thing last week to whoever. What are you talking about? Like, it was hilariously kind of a uh, structuralist or post-structuralist argument unto itself. Like, here are all the traits you've identified for me as being a bad person. Look how Hulk Hogan also matches with all those traits that you were previously saying are for bad people. And as you were saying, like, it was a second alternate reading that a very, 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 very tiny percentage of the audience was reading. I want to emphasize that, that, like, this is all kind of hindsight, post-OSW, post-Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller reading of Hulk Hogan here. But it is explicit when you watch it yeah but it's always been there and and Je you're right jesse and uh and and bobby were always there i mean even bobby right the the famous hogan heel turn all those years later in wcw and uh, bobby heenan said whose side is he on and some people say oh he spoiled it 
But it's like, no, from Bobby Heenan's perspective, Hulk Hogan had always been an untrustworthy person. Like he didn't, you know what I mean? So it, it did make sense. Contextually, not to get super nerdy, contextually, uh, Bobby Heenan, when he was a heel manager, you could say, no, that guy right now is doing bad. When he was an announcer, it was a lot more nuanced. Because he could say stuff and you couldn't tell whether or not his how it was how he actually felt. Yeah, I think that there was, kind of getting back to when we were talking about Vince earlier, I think there was like a difference that from Bobby Heenan. Yeah, when he was managing, you know, he was the character Bobby the Brain Heenan. But when you saw him on like Primetime or Wrestling Challenge, whichever of those shows, you know, back in the day, that was supposed to be Bobby Heenan. That was like one layer of mask removal, so to speak, where he was a really funny sharp-witted, almost like vaudeville-style entertainer. You know, that there was definitely a slightly different Bobby Heenan than he was as a manager during matches, you know, when when he was managing uh, Rick Rude or Andre or, or even uh, Ric Flair or any of those. And his entire thing was that he didn't trust Hogan. It wasn't that... I mean, he was also a bad guy. But the thing with Hogan was, I just don't like you. I think you're an asshole. You're talking about how my whole life, I've geared everything to tear down Hulkamania. I've done everything I can to destroy you. You know something, Hogan? You are 100% correct. I will not sleep. I will not eat. I will not rest until I am the manager of the heavyweight champion of the world. And you're out of professional wrestling. Now, I don't care if you're sweeping streets. If you're cleaning subways, or if you're in a field someplace, or institutionalized for the rest of your life, for the terminally bewildered because your mind is gone, I don't care about you. I can't stand you. Matter of fact, I hate you. When he says that, like you said, there's a split between people who say, oh, he spoiled it. And like, no, that character always acts in opposition to Hogan because he doesn't trust him. Bobby Heenan expected, or I should say Bobby the Brain Heenan, expected Hulk Hogan to turn heel every night since 1987. He was surprised every time that Hogan didn't sell out his friends. He was just waiting for the moment that it happened. And then the night at Passage of the Beach, it finally happened. And guess what? He wasn't surprised because he'd been anticipating it for almost 10 years. Yes. And I think what's interesting is he plays kind of the Courtchester role in that context. Sure. The wise fool. Not just a postmodern spin because the court jester itself, although it is from literally like the Middle Ages, is is like a, a, a post, almost like a postmodern concept in the sense that like... Satire to me is one of the more postmodern concepts I can think, or post-structuralist concepts that you're poking out all the holes that 
um, the thing that you're looking at has created for itself and like filling in the gaps with usually humor. Sometimes it's just dark darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, even in, even in the play, uh, like Twelfth Night, a Shakespeare play, uh, Festy, the, the jester, he is like a transgressive character. Like he breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience. And he says things under his breath that the other characters shouldn't hear that you do in a stage whisper, you know? So it's like, this is, it's definitely always been the character type. And I agree with you that that was Bobby Heenan, that even though he was like a bad guy in his capacity as a wise fool, he had a very honest relationship with the audience. And so did actually Jesse, the body Ventura, who is made. I love Bobby Heenan. I would argue the most gifted actual heel announcer is uh, Ventura. Like, in the sense that he was the best at articulating the position of the bad guys and the good guys and explaining why he agreed with the bad guys and why the good guys will never succeed unless they take the path that the bad guys are taking. Yeah, he absolutely also really, you know, people talk about like Scott Hall and the NWO in the 90s and kind of the era of the cool heel. But I mean, I think that he kind of pointed out that like, well... Like, wouldn't you much rather live our lifestyle than the lifestyle Hulk Hogan claims he lives? Wouldn't you rather be riding on motorcycles and hanging out with rock stars and, uh, and their groupies uh, than uh, taking your vitamins and, and saying your prayers and brushing your teeth and all that good stuff? Like, wouldn't any reasonable person want to be on our side? Exactly. And I think... He illustrates uh, uh, the the whole theme of this episode, honestly, which is that like McMahon doesn't change anything, but he changes everything. Because, like you said, uh, Lucha Underground is kind of the realization of the postmodern ideal of what wrestling could be in the mind of the like modern auteur, as you said, of wrestling. That like this would be like if I know you hate him, but if Steven Spielberg had come up with uh, had had a conception of what the new blockbuster could be, and like someone else created it perfectly, like I, which I don't think has been done. I know you hate Steven Spielberg, so maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he's just not my favorite uh, intentionally heartwarming uh, filmmaker. No, but I, I do know what you mean. It's interesting to, to uh, I mean, I guess over time, it's just kind of showing that, I mean, Vince is basically aging out of his kind of years as an influencer. I mean, he's going kicking and screaming and going to squeeze every last drop out of it. Don't get me wrong. But I just mean in terms of the progression of history, he is aging out. And I guess in, you know, Krista Joseph, who's one of the main kind of creative guys, Big Dick Johnson from the WWE. Uh, I apologize for saying Big Dick Johnson. Uh but I mean, he is someone who studied under Vince. So it's like, you know, we're kind of seeing the next split, the next generation in the coaching tree. So maybe there are minds out there who in the next 10, 15 years, whether it's people like DeJoseph, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's Don Callis with Impact and Scott Demore, um, or whether it's Triple H, whoever it turns out to be, like, is there that person out there who can take maybe some of the parts of the vision that Vince didn't get to, or can look at some of what Vince did from a slightly different angle and, you know, really innovate? Yeah, and I think they're doing stuff because uh, the medium is changing 
from television, it changed from Barth's and and the open theater spectacle, uh, open air spectacle of the professional wrestling ring to this speech, right? The 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 speech at the beginning of the episode, and through the lens of the work of people like Derrida and Barth's, because like I said, Barth goes from a structuralist to a post structuralist. They have started to get into the world of social media and. And like I said earlier, streaming services as the medium through which wrestling will be conveyed. And that has led to weird changes that I, I this is going to get a little esoteric. I really like the new uh, graphics for WWE. Uh, they are very bright. Uh, they have word drops when people cut promos. It looks cheesy until you realize that when you are flipping through your phone on Facebook and you're watching a video, it now tells you what the people in the video are saying in the promo. So they are actually changing their their on-screen product to better suit preemptively because they're working with people like Facebook and they're going to be working with people like Twitter and Amazon and Netflix, most likely. So they're going, they are changing the way again. And I think that is happening in large part because they now have a staff of people who you hear more and more that like Vince isn't at SmackDown or Vince isn't in control of NXT or 205 Live at all anymore. Like he is lessening, uh, loosening the grasp. And that next innovator, like you said, it might be uh, Triple H, it might be Big Dick Johnson. Um, <laughs> they have turned wrestling. They have figured out that wrestling. I hate to use this, but wrestling isn't wrestling. Wrestling is the like the th- the thing in the ring, which I guess goes back to Bart's. But it's how that thing in the ring tells the story of the world around us in the simplest way it can possibly do it over and over again. Right? I think that's like the post-structuralist idea of wrestling is that it's a medium through which conflicts can be resolved in a way that reflects, if not directly, at least in a broad sense. And that's where the broadness comes, uh, our society and the different like factions and stuff like that. Like that's where it could go. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think from a post-structuralist perspective, like you said, I think wrestling is a perfect example of a genre where the shell of the egg has really been cracked and there's no going back. And in some ways, there's some things you can't do anymore. But on the other end, it's really opened up a lot of new possibilities. And so, you know, I think we can go potentially a lot of like really new and exciting directions and, and start seeing, you know, the sort of wrestling content that we haven't seen before. Like even this year, you have Glow on Netflix, right, uh, about to I, – I know they're filming the second season. They might have wrapped filming at this point. I don't know. But, I mean, that's something that even outside of the WWE sphere shows the way that, you know, wrestling and, and, and wrestling is really kind of growing and, and coming to mean more and more. It's almost like um, – and, and Glow is a really great example of uh, what I'm talking about, that wrestling is slowly – like the wrestler is the – um, I think the watershed moment of what I'm talking about where wrestling as a cultural me- became a cultural medium as much as a like artistic medium. It now is a world in the way that like, and it always has been, but it's now being recognized in a postmodern sense 
as um, its own, not industry, but art, art form, art form. That's the like, so you have music movies about musicians. I'm not saying there's going to be a thousand movies about wrestlers, but there's going to be a lot more both documentaries and, uh, and fiction, but also um, historical nonfiction movies that are like biopics and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like pages coming out with a movie. Um, Glow is a television show based on is exactly what I'm talking about, but a little bit more artistic license that, you used to have what they call like wrestling episodes of television shows. Now you have wrestling television shows that aren't wrestling. And uh, you actually wrote um, about this because I think the place that this is happening most palpably is the women's division um, of the WWE in terms of a big platform thing. Cause we will be spending an entire episode at some point on uh, Lucha underground indirectly. Um, Cause I want to use telenovelas uh, and, and soap operas. Uh, basically what Dave mentioned uh, to talk about it next week's episode, though, I want to mention this now is uh, will they, or won't they? So Dave, really excited for this one. Want to talk about friends. Yeah. Uh, Come talk about friends with me. (laughs) We uh, will not be friends after that episode, but going in, (laughs) uh, no, you wrote um, an article specifically about this idea of, um, women's wrestling traveling through structuralism for a exceedingly long time. And then finally in the last two years, three years since the quote unquote divas evolution started, I, I, I couldn't convey how much disdain I have for that term, uh, that ins- insistent terminology. No, I love women's, the, the women's revolution is, or evolution oh. is the thing I have a problem with. Oh no, I, Prefer them being called TM, women's, women's revolution, all caps. Yeah, TM. TM, exactly. Uh, I, I, I'm happy they're women super, they are women superstars, but I think they convey that this, basically this entire episode as well as anything else in wrestling in the last like 20 years, right? Like the last 20 years of women's wrestling, especially in the biggest stages has been exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, throughout ironically right in smack dab in the era that that vince speech came from i think that the way uh female characters were portrayed in the wwe was like they were playing generally stock roles and they were kind of sex objects and they were just basically different flavors of sex objects yeah i was gonna say they weren't kind they were actively sex objects right there was there was stripping and bra and panties matches and hand prints uh, you know hand print shaped pasties and um, live sex celebrations and all all sorts of great stuff like that. Um, but but um, in recent years, becoming a women's a woman's wrestler means something way different than it did twenty years ago, right? Like now, it means storytelling and it means being a great wrestler in the way that the men are great wrestlers, having great matches, cutting great promos, being parts of feuds that people care about. But as recently as just a few years ago, it was like, yeah, the women, exactly, as you were saying, were just kind of still living in this world where they only played these very um, kind of circumspect or circumscribed uh, narrow character types, all of which were sexy. And um, I think it's really great that the WWE this year is putting someone in their Hall of Fame who comes from that time period where everything was really sexualized, but was kind of that outlier. 
So like I was talking about with Vince earlier, right? Derrida said that in a world of sameness, then it's the outlier who tells you more about the culture. Well, I think another example of that is with a woman named Lisa Moretti, who played, uh, uh, who played the character of Ivory in the WWE and was also uh, Tina Ferrari in the original run of Glow back in the late 80s or mid 80s. But I mean, she was really someone who in the era when the characters were, were really super sexualized, she was actually playing like a feminist character, which made her just a super heel to the audience. And just someone who is really, really fun to watch, a really great heel in a way that I don't think many of her peers were capable of performing. And um, so I wrote a piece about her at The Wrestling Estate, which you can uh, check out. It's uh, thewrestlingestate.com. Uh, but check it out. I, I explored kind of what made Lisa Moretti a really special performer, um, a real feminist symbol at a time when there weren't many at, in the WWE and a super, super worthy Hall of Fame choice. Yeah, and I think she's interesting in particular because she is the last of the, uh, I guess you would call it modern in opposition to postmodern, not modern in uh, could, like conventional sense, uh, of what was, I guess you'd call the moolah role, where they were the only person on the roster that could really do their job, and their job mm-hmm. became making sure everybody else was doing their job. Like, that was the, it was like, uh, she not that she had to hurt cats, but like... Right. No, it was her job to make sure the women's stuff didn't suck. And sometimes that meant she was taking a segment that had five performers in it, and she was the only one with with talent. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> her job was so different from Charlotte. Charlotte's a tremendous champion. Alexa Bliss is a tremendous champion. But their job is to have great matches and cut great promos and be part of great wrestling moments. Ivory's job was just so much different and so much harder than that. And I think in today. People, people, I've seen people on Twitter and stuff kind of comparing her negatively to the talent of today. And it's like, well, that's not fair at all because you're talking about her totally out of context. She did the best possible job with anybody could have done in that role. She's from the dead ball era. She yeah, has that's 500 home runs. You're like, what the fuck? How that's do you a great way of home- saying it. It's a great way of saying it. She's a power hitter from the dead ball era. I couldn't have said it better myself, Nick. I should have written that. That's perfect. Um uh, I think we can end on that. I feel very special. Um, yeah, definitely. Do you want to uh, jump into a, a little uh, thinky wrestling podcast yeah. roundup? Yeah, let's let's do that. All right. So I guess I'll uh, kind of start with the main event first, since it connects into uh, the conversation that we were just having. Is um, I really, really highly recommend uh, the Steve Austin show uh, from February twentieth. Um, his guest is Lisa Moretti, Ivory, the woman about whom we were just talking. And I thought the really kind of the juiciest, most interesting parts of the interview were from the 32 minute, 25 second mark onwards. Um, that's when they really start talking about Glow, the really um, just super groundbreaking, super different women's wrestling program of the mid to late 80s. So if you're interested in learning more about kind of the early days, of, of women's wrestling as kind of presented as a main event thing, um, or just a really interesting conversation um, about working in TV in the 1980s. It's just a great, great conversation. Couldn't recommend uh, that episode of the Steve Austin show more highly. Uh, then moving down, so thinky suggestion number two is another episode of uh, Down and Dirty with Dutch Mantel. I've been recently trying to... Uh, maybe open my horizons little and, uh, and uh, start to consider some viewpoints that aren't exactly like mine. And uh, Dutch Mantel definitely is someone who is uh, 
not politically correct, as I'm sure he would say. Uh, but but I really, really enjoy him because he, he really speaks his mind and he's so good at explaining himself that even if he doesn't pick words that you necessarily like, by the time he's done explaining, you, you tend to agree with him. And this is a great example. It's, it's from episode seven, which actually uh, originally dropped on February 12th. And I want you to zero in on the 23 minute, 20 second mark uh, and listen to it through 3030. He is talking about gay and trans characters in wrestling. And like I said, he is like not a PC character. He's a, a little bit maybe like your uncle at the barbecue who's had one too many. And he's definitely not woke to pronouns at all. Uh, but the by the end, he makes the argument that a trans character could potentially be like the next game changer big star so it's really interesting to hear someone who like i said is not woke to pronouns or proper terminology or anything like that but also is kind of making the point really that there should be more gay and trans wrestling characters yeah and i think that's important and something uh we have plans um next episode i will be having a, a friend of mine named darnell he is a wrestling fan um he is also a gay man and a black man at the same time. So all of those things. Um, and he is going to talk about representation both in the next episode. And we are going to do a full episode on representation. So I, I think that that will come up again. But I think it's important to note that the thing with wrestling is there's a really common saying. And it's not to say there aren't racists and racism in wrestling, but that the only color that matters is green. Mm -hmm. Like they don't care. Like P Pat Patterson is maybe the most universally beloved person in wrestling, at least in the WWE history of the WWF, WWE. He's been open, uh, openly backstage. It's been an open, it was an open secret that he was, he was gay for 40 years. And, I mean, that doesn't make it okay, like, the fact that they had gay characters that were, uh, let's say, um, uh, stereotypical would be the nicest way to put it. Mm -hmm. They, It was done with the idea that – that is a double-edged sword, I guess is what I'm saying, that, like, they only care about money. So, like – Oh, definitely. They are That's prejudiced actually... against not making money. That is it. Like <laughs> Oh, no. If you listen, I really recommend you listen to this based on what you just said, Nick, because he really gets into like the potential of it. And then one of the follow up questions that they kind of start exploring is like, well, could you really trust any wrestling promoter to do it right? <laughs> and I think uh, Lucha Underground, maybe um, Chikara, I actually think totally could because Mike Quackenbush is is actually woke. He is actually a guy that I have a spoken with uh, with for like ten years ago for something, uh, but mm -hmm. in general is a pretty public like uh, woke person. I guess would be the best way to put it. Like someone who is very in tune to what he's doing and uh, is a very uh, an innovator in intergender wrestling matches uh, in the modern context. Um, so yeah, like I think someone like that could, but uh, maybe not Vince. <laughs> yeah, I think that's basically the same uh, conclusion that Dutch came to. So I so definitely check out that's episode seven of Down and Dirty with Dutch Mantel, originally aired on two twelve. And then I got one more for you, which is actually totally not a wrestling related podcast, but it ties in a lot into the conversation that we were just having, which seems like a theme. Uh, and it's actually an episode of This American Life. Yes, I'm recommending you an NPR podcast. I am that person. Um, it's from episode six. 37 which is called words you can't say um and it's a lot it's a lot of kind of thoughts on 
uh, PC culture and what some folks out there might call sort of like social justice warrioring. But uh, it, it really looks at both sides of it really balanced because I know that there's, you know, a lot of thought about wrestling recently. And like, there's a lot of uh, folks online kind of trying to steer wrestling, like is wrestling like a social justice uh, project about inclusion, about making everybody feel really good? Or is wrestling kind of a genre that in some ways is like some discrimination is part of it, you know, by nature, you got to make people feel sad in order for there to be heels, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that this discussion on This American Life, uh, they're kind of getting at a lot of the same issues uh, as, as, as what wrestling Twitter seems to be grappling with recently. So I recommend episode 637 of This American Life as well. And to be clear, you're more saying that like, can heels say inappropriate things, not should they have gay characters that are like stereotypical and two-dimensional, right? Like, Right. No, no, no. I'm not saying that they should have stereotypical characters who are two-dimensional whatsoever. Um, but I'm more saying that the discussion the discussion is about like, can we even have a conversation about these things in a way that we can present them on TV? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, obviously not what you meant, but like what is meant by that uh, saying like, social should they be a social justice platform is not like should we have gay people in wrestling it's no 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 should those gay people be insulted in a way that is would be deemed inappropriate in polite society as a way to ensure that when they get their comeuppance when the person who did that gets their comeuppance it's like satisfactory to a financial uh, note, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> well, and then what, one of the issues they actually get into in, in the podcast is like, once again, tying back to the Dutch discussion is they actually get into like, well, are some of these issues just so frigging touchy by nature? And that they're so, they're just so nuanced that like, you can't really have a national dialogue about them, or at least you can't have a national dialogue about them in the context of like entertainment because they're just so touchy and mean so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah, that's uh, pretty, I, I will probably listen to that episode of uh, this American life. Um, I actually have along those same lines, but not at all that. Um, I have a thinky <laughs> wrestling podcast uh, suggestion. Go fucking see black Panther. Go. It is so good. It is such a good movie about, a superhero and it's just a great film like it's i it's so good it will make you love everything again i i yeah it's not a wrestling thing it's just you should go see this movie it is lit as fuck oh yeah i'm checking it out with my brother-in-law tomorrow nights but i'm sure i've only heard positive things i've I always, I'm the first person whenever anybody bring up the comic book movies to say like, oh yeah, great, another comic book movie. But everyone I've, I've talked to has told me like, no matter how weary you are of, uh, of just the constant assault of comic book movies over the last 15 years, like you will love this one. Even if you don't need, you, it doesn't even need to be a comic book movie, you know? Oh, it doesn't. And that, the reason I specifically, they have a discussion in the thing that's basically what we're talking about is like, how can you have this discussion in the context of entertainment? And they have a serious discussion that I don't want to ruin because it ruins the entire movie, but like it's, <laughs> Please don't, ben. it's what we're talking about in this episode. So in that sense, it is a uh, wrestling related uh, selection. Uh, so yeah. we, everything's wrestling adjacent. Man. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, is the whole point of this podcast. Uh <laughs> 
we will be back in two weeks with our episode on um, will they or won't they. Uh, you want to look up the Golden Lovers and f- Friends and uh, Scrubs and Frasier and Frasier because we're definitely going to talk about Frasier. Uh, also, um, spoiler alert, Shawn Michaels is going to come up at some point during this episode. Wait, I, I never watched the last couple of seasons. Did Frasier and Niles do it? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, you're waiting for it, and it just never. Uh... I'm glad. I'm, you know what? I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't waste my time. Let's live your time